This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thank you for always praying for me, too. I appreciate that. Um, well, good morning, Trinity. If you're visiting us, I'm Ronnie. Uh, I, you guys know I grew up in, I'm a Houston kid, right? And I know Texas thunderstorms. Like, I don't get scared off by a good thunderstorm. But I tell you, when we arrived at Puerto Rico, it was, it was several years ago now, we live in Trujillo Alto, and uh, a, a big storm passed through in the middle of the night. All of my family, everyone was, you know, soundly asleep, and suddenly, a massive explosion rocked the entire house. And I mean, alarms were going off, everything, immediately, like, all my kids, like, jumped out of bed, and I had four babies in our big old king-size bed. I mean, a man and I were just, like, they were, I mean, they were startled. Um, they heard what I heard, and they were crying. <laughs> so uh, what were they looking for when they jumped in the biscuit with us, right? They were looking for comfort, right? They were looking for comfort. So there we were, all our kids underneath the blankets, and um, I started thinking, uh, about thunder. Thunder has a way of making you feel really small and uh, fragile, doesn't it? Thunder has a way of reminding us that we are not in charge. Now, while my children were snuggling in bed with us, um, I had this thought. Why is it that thunder scares my children and in some odd way it brings comfort to me? What's going on there? Because I could honestly say that magnificent display of lightning and thunder, it put in me a, a, a comfort that comes by way of awe, by way of awe. That night while I lay in bed, I thought about uh, God's words to Job. Y'all remember the story in Job? Uh, after Job had critiqued God, God responds with these powerful words starting in chapter 38. He says, it says, the text says, I, the Lord answered Job in a whirlwind, and he says, who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And he looks at Job, he says, you dress for action, and you answer me if you know these things. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who has determined its measurements? Surely you know, God says to Job. Now, for three chapters... The Lord is like confronting Job with his resume, with the most powerful manifestations in the universe, from stars to oceans, storms and wild beasts. Everything is subject to this one who speaks to God. And these words remind us that we are not in charge, but God is. And that thought is supposed to move us from fear to comfort. Now, when I heard the furious sound of thunder that day, I thought to myself, this is nothing. This is just a small display of the power of the Lord. And the Lord of thunder is my Lord, too. He's yours. That's what the first Christmas was like. The display of radiance by the angels to the shepherds, it did two things. It scared them, and then it comforted them. And that's what we're going to see this morning, this text that we've read throughout this Christmas season a couple times, but tonight we're going to, or this morning we're going to preach on it. So 
Uh, we're going to learn those two lessons. Would you, in reverence to God's word, if you're able, please stand with me. And let's give our attention. This is Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but not God's word. It abides forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. Now, as I kind of poured over this story this week, there's something that didn't kind of measure up, something didn't make sense. I mean, why were the shepherds afraid? So usually people are scared in the dark, but then their fears are alleviated in the light. But here, in this text, it's the exact opposite. The shepherds were quite comfortable in the dark, but they grew very afraid when the light came. Now, why? Why did that happen? The answer is that this light was no ordinary light. It was evidence that God had broken into this world. And as we're going to see is that the radiance of the angels, as they celebrated this first Christmas, that is the birth of Christ, it does two things. First, it scares us, and then it comforts us. So we're going to look at both of these components. Let's begin with how the light scares us. Why don't we do that? Now, I recognize it's an odd thing for me to say to you that Christmas is intended to scare us first. So what do I mean by that? Well, the text tells us in in no uncertain terms that the shepherds were terrified. The old King James says that they were sore afraid. Who talks like that? They were sore afraid. Look there in verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. They were sore afraid. Now, how did the brilliance of the angels strike fear? Well, the light of God shows us that God has come, and you're not him, (laughs) right? The light of God, similar to thunder, shows us how small we are and how inadequate we are to play the role of God. Let me give you two illustrations to kind of show you how this works. The first illustration comes by way of a book written by the great existentialist author, Albert Camus. He writes a book called The Fall. This was written in 1956. The main character is this guy named Clements. And Clements is this wealthy defense lawyer who is highly respected by his colleagues. And when the story begins, he feels confident, superior, in charge. He assumes that he is the author of his own script. He thinks he's the master of his own universe. He's a modern man with confidence in himself and his own powers of reason and logic. There's no problem that Clements cannot solve. This guy doesn't know what it means 
to be a loser. There isn't a problem that he can't solve. And so he's powerful and he's respected and successful in all the areas that he is particularly interested in. And that's namely business and with women. So who needs a God when you are virtually your own God, right? But then something happens. Late, night, late one night, he's on his way home. He sees this woman dressed in black leaning over the edge of a bridge. Now, he hesitates for a moment, but he continues on his way. A few moments later, he hears the distinct sound of a body hitting the water. Clement stops walking, but he knows exactly what happens, and he does not act. The sound of screaming was repeated several times as it went downstream, but then it abruptly stops. In the silence that follows absolutely haunted his soul. There was this irresistible weakness or this acute weakness that comes over him, and that event changes him forever. In fact, it changes his self-understanding. It opened up to him a whole world of doubt and insecurities. From the moment he failed to try to save the woman on the bridge, a corner is turned in Clemens's life. He would never feel life comfortably again. It forced him to take an honest glimpse into his own soul, only to find flaws that none of his successes could ever cover up. See, when he looked into the mirror, the reflection looking back at him was a guilty man, a man who was inadequate and most certainly not God. See, the light had finally shone on Clements, and he was afraid. Now, that literary character is brilliant and tremendously insightful. But let me share with you a true story. Tim Keller, years ago, talks about this interview with this, um, it was on the radio, of this prominent atheist scientist. Uh, The scientist had recently said that he was now searching for truth, his words. How come? He said that all his life, he didn't even care about the question, is God real? Right? To him, the question was silly and irrelevant, especially for a modern and rational person. For him, not believing in God was simply an obvious, objective position to take. Something changed in him. See, his children began to grow older. And as his children became adults, they began to make very poor decisions. They were doing things that would ruin their lives and ruin the lives of their family. And so as a father, the scientist, this guy, he tried to intervene and and tell them about the consequences of their poor choices. But each time he would intervene, his children would get very angry with him. And And they would respond to him by saying, you're just trying to control me, right? Dad, it's none of your business. Stay out of our private life. And so he asked himself, are they right? Right? Who has the right to say what they're doing is right or wrong, right? Natural selection seems to support very oppressive behaviors. And this hurt the father, the scientist, very deeply. And he began to realize something. In the things that are most important to him, the things that are most important to him, he is not in charge And he later began to understand that what they were doing was truly wrong, even if he couldn't prove it in a 
science laboratory. And because of this, he realized that his disbelief in God was not objective, it was subjective. And that actually made him quite afraid. He had lived his life as his own God, but this light was beginning to shine on him, and he realized there must be a God. And he felt out of control. He felt the weight of living as if there were no God. It made him very afraid. There is a God, and he wasn't him. That's what light does. That's what this Christmas does. This is what it did to the shepherds, and that's what it does to us first. It makes you feel very inadequate, thunderously inadequate, until you feel like you're a sinner, until you feel your own inadequacy, until you feel God's penetrating radiance and holiness, you will never understand Christmas. Christmas will just be superficial sentimentality. But when you are deeply afraid that you are out of control in your own life, that is when you are finally in touch with reality. That is what's real, y'all. Let me explain. Listen. If there is a God who made you, follow me here, and you, if there's a God who made you and who is in charge of you, and you live your life as if you are in charge of your own life, then you are actually living a delusion. This is like a psychotic state, to use that kind of language, right? Psychosis is when a person lives in a loss of contact with reality. That is when a person lives in a world that is not true. Scientists came to grips that the so-called objective scientific world that he lived was actually deeply subjective, and it never and could never make sense of the things that he loved the most. I couldn't. So God's gift to us is the light of Christmas because it teaches our hearts to fear. And fear is what wakes us up from the psychosis that we are our own gods and that we're in charge of our own lives. In Psalm 86, the singer, the poet, he actually writes a song about this. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear, to fear your name. Guys, this Christmas, do not curse the light. Submit to its, to its lessons. Let it put you back in touch with reality. There is a God, and you're not him. So far, we, what we've seen is that Chris, the Christmas announcement scares us. Let's turn our attention to how Christmas comforts us, the second part. You know, it's my hope that my children, as they grow, they'll grow in their love and knowledge of Christ uh, and that they will then be comforted by thunder, right? Not simply scared by it. And that's the idea of this next part. The brilliant light by the angels were followed by words of comfort. Look there at verse 10 and 11. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, those two verses are, are a short summary of what we call the gospel, right? The good news. That is, that God has broken into our realm, and it's a, it's a blessing to all people. And the, so that language in verse 11, the city of David, 
that's Bethlehem, right? And this, of course, was foretold 730 years earlier. We've read this verse also in the prophecy of Micah. In Micah 5.2, he says, You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little among the clans of Judah, but from you shall come forth the one who is to be a ruler in Israel. Right? So, now, that verse, coupled with the event in Luke, is spectacular for many reasons. But I want to just kind of dig into the beauty of the incarnation. And here's why. Religion, as you guys understand religion, uh, it tends to look at God and man and strictly divide the two realms, right? This is why agnosticism in our culture is so popular. For example, some people will concede that perhaps there is a God, perhaps, but we can never know him. We can never know for sure. And so spiritual truth is thought of as something that is radically personal and, and privatized and not appropriate for public consumption or for public belief, right? It's this idea of what's true for you is true for you, but not for me, right? That kind of logic. But what we have in this announcement in Luke 2 is this, that truth broke into history. Truth became a fact, and God became a man. Now, of course, we must still have faith, but our faith makes sense of our experience and our knowledge. And so not believing then becomes more troubling, right? And let me illustrate this. Uh, I get this illustration from Michael Behe, but scientists will look at the bone structure of a hand of a monkey and with astonishment say, wow, look at the striking similarities between monkeys and humans. But then philosophers will look at the same bone structure and say with astonishment, wow, it is striking how little monkeys accomplish with their hands, how little they accomplish with their hands. See, human hands create magnificent works of art like Van Gogh's Starry Night or Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. These same hands will play and compose exquisite masterpieces of music like Handel's Messiah or Beethoven's Fifth. Have you ever been moved by art or music? You guys have heard my preaching enough to know, like, I... Love this. I love art and culture. Uh, it was recently I was listening to uh, the, a symphony perform Handel's Messiah. And there I was in the audience, like tears coming from my face. So I'm a softy, but it made me incre- incredibly emotional to listen to it. And I, I couldn't quite explain why. It was just so beautiful. I, I wanted to enter into the beauty, but it was elusive. See, there is a craving in our soul for beauty. We have a need for it. Now, interestingly enough, this is the line of argumentation that ultimately led to the conversion of C.S. Lewis. And he writes a little bit about it in his essay, The Weight of Glory. It would take you 35 minutes to read the whole thing, but here's the short version. Here with some context. In 1929, J.R. Tolkien, who writes The Lord of the Rings, right? J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were professors at Oxford College. Tolkien was a Christian. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. So Lewis asked, how could the life and death of a person who lived 2,000 years ago have any relevance today? 
And to that question, Tolkien responds with his own question. He says, Jack, what happens to you when you are in the presence of magnificent art or literature or music? He says, he asks, how does it affect you? And here's what he concluded. When you are in the presence of something stunningly beautiful, it makes you believe that there is ultimate truth, right? It makes you believe that there is this thing called perfect love. And in those moments, we think of human beings as immortals instead of just clouds of atoms, right? We think there's something more to who we are. But if you mistake the feeling of transcendence for the piece of art itself, all right, you following this? then you will be hopelessly disappointed to find that it is simply a dumb idol. The thing itself will actually break the heart of the person trying to worship it because its beauty and its truth are elusive. And what we find is that transcendent beauty that we sometimes experience through art and music and literature is simply an echo or a portal to something else in this universe that we were all made for, right? How is it possible, unlike animals, that humans feel like there's this underlying reality to the transcendent beauty that we can perceive when we look at the stars or when we listen to Johann Sebastian Bach or see a painting by Michelangelo? Our souls crave this beauty, just like it craves other visceral cravings like sex or drink or food. We have need for this kind of beauty. And so C.S. Lewis, he organizes this line of thinking. He says, a man's hunger, a man's hunger does not prove that he will get bread, but it does prove that he was designed to eat. So what about the longings in our soul? Having these longings for sublime truth does not promise that we will find it, but it does prove that we were somehow made for it, designed for it. So he says, if you look around this world and find that nothing in the physical universe satisfies our deepest hunger for truth and for perfect love, does that mean that this world is a fraud? No, it means that we were made for a different world. That piece of news is what convinced C.S. Lewis that Jesus, born in a manger 2,000 years ago, is more real and more relevant than anything else, especially if he is who he claims to be. And this is the hope of, Christ, of Christmas. When the angel said, a savior has been born to you, he is Christ the Lord. He's saying, that ultimate truth has broken into our realm. Beauty has come to our world. Perfect love has walked into history. Art, music, beauty, it'll get you close to the truth. But if you accept Jesus, if you trust in him, then not only can you get near truth, but truth will put its arm around you. And to this, to this, the angels sing, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I don't know how that makes you feel. 
Christmas is confusing. It dares us, confronts us, comforts us. It's supposed to be the happiest time of year. You and I know that's not true. A letdown has already happened, a shadow of the 25th, right? Perfect love and truth are replaced by materialism and greed and broken families. Sometimes Christmas makes us feel more alone. As we know, as was reported every year, there are more suicides in the month of December than in any other month of the year. So the question is, what, what can take us out of this despair? And it's this news, that although you might feel alone, you are never alone. God, perfect love, has broken into the affairs of mankind in order to bind up our broken hearts, to take away our sin, and to replace it with unspeakable beauty. Let me just finish the sermon with one final thought, if you'll let me. So I tried to explain the implications of Christmas, right? The birth of Christ. First, it scares us and shows us that we're not God. And then it comforts us that God has come near. That's truly astounding. God, who is the embodiment of perfection and holiness, for reasons unbeknownst to us, has decided to come near to us. Enemies of God. Our rebellion has not dissuaded God from pursuing us. We don't step towards God. Christmas is about God taking steps towards us, and he has. Now, there's this one last feature in this text that's really amazing, and it's kind of hard for us to understand as as 21st century modern readers. So I'm going to help us with it. But the As we learn right there in verse 8, the recipients of this very first Christmas announcement were shepherds. They're shepherds. That little detail is meant to uh, catch you by surprise. It's supposed to be shocking. I don't know if it's shocking to you when you read it, but it's supposed to shock you. And let me explain why. Shepherds were social outcasts. They were poor, uneducated, uncultured, dare I say it, uncouth. Now, if you were with your family walking in the city, you would go to the other side of the street, keep going, so that you could avoid them. They were the rough characters in their cities. They were the misfits of society. And so much of their testimony was not even admissible in court. It's similar to what it was, how, as was the case for women. They were considered unreliable witnesses right, in Roman courts. They are social outsiders. But you know what else? They were religious outsiders. Because their work was considered ceremonially unclean and in contact with animals that were ceremonially unclean, they were not allowed to enter into temple courts or to be an active part of temple worship. Religious leaders often thought of them as being on par with prostitutes. So when it came to the religion of their day, they were always outsiders looking in. So here we have then, God is inviting a group of guys who've been on the outside looking in the entirety of their lives and putting them 
at the very top of the invite list of the most important birthday of all time. And that fact alone is meant to like warm your heart to the gospel message itself, that God comes to really messed up people, and he gives them dignity. God comes to really messed up and rejected people. And listen, if, if you wanted to start a religion, like you're just a crazy dude, and you wanted to start a religion, you would not pick shepherds to be the first people to spread the news about the baby being born. God doesn't care, though. He loves them, even if they're misfits and outcasts. He's not ashamed of them. And you know what else? He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you and me. He's not ashamed to become one of us, even if we are selfish and perverted, addicted. That is this beautiful mystery of Christmas. Jesus loves sinners, and he became one of us to save us. So that's the only way to understand verse 14, this explosion of worship. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men, even sinful men on whom his favor rests. Amen.